Greetings to those who watch below. Before we start today's video, I'd like to say thank you to those who dwell below. An exclusive channel membership you can check out using the link in the description box. So thank you to Steffi Ray, Wicked Witch, Lisa Watts, Lefty Kim, M.A. Way, Julie B, Jess Black Curtain, and Christina Groves. For today's video, we're going to be looking at some of the most mysterious people in history. We're using the term people very, very broadly, especially for one of the entries. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy. The Man from Torrid It was July 1954 when a smartly dressed man arrived at Haneda Airport in Tokyo, Japan. Much like other passengers, he made his way to customs. But whatever happened from this point onwards have left all puzzled and concerned. When questioned by the customs officers, the mysterious passenger said he was from Torrid. The mystery man claimed that it was the third time he was visiting Japan from his country. But to the surprise of the officers, they couldn't find any country named Torrid. The primary language of the man, described as Caucasian looking with a beard, was French. However, he purportedly spoke Japanese and many other languages as well. Officers were perplexed because they had never heard about any such country. The passport of the man was issued by, of course, Torrid. The passport looked authentic, but the place was not recognised. The man was then given a map and asked to point out his country. He immediately pointed to the area occupied by the Principality of Andorra. Andorra is at the border of France and Spain. The man said that his country had been in existence for a thousand years, and was a little puzzled why his country was called Andorra on the map. The man argued with the customs officers for a long time, and refused to give in. He was also carrying currencies of different countries, probably because he had made several business trips. The mystery man shared other details, like the company for which he worked for, and the hotel where he was staying. Officials found out that the company he mentioned existed in Tokyo, but not in Torred. Similarly, the hotel he mentioned did exist, but hotel employees informed them that no such booking was made. This prompted officers to take the man in custody for further interrogation. Officers were suspicious that he might be some criminal and confiscated his documents and personal belongings. The officers put the mystery man in a nearby hotel while they conducted their investigation. To ensure that the mystery man didn't escape, two guards were placed on the door. It must be mentioned that the hotel room in which he was staying only had one entry and exit point. But to everyone's surprised, the man had vanished the next morning. Not only that, but all his personal documents had also disappeared. A search was launched to find the man, but it was in vain. The thing that was troubling investigating officers was that he was put in a room high up in the multi-storey hotel with no balcony. Some people argue that the mystery man was indeed from Torrid, but that the country happens to be in another universe and the man had somehow passed through a parallel dimension and ended up at Haneda Airport. Another theory is that the mystery man was a time traveller and had mistakenly landed at the airport. The Man in the Iron Mask During the reign of King Louis XIV, an enigmatic man spent several decades confined to the Bastille and other French prisons. No one knew his identity or why he was in jail. Even stranger, 
no one knew what he looked like. The prisoner was never seen without a black velvet mask covering his face. The anonymous prisoner has since inspired countless stories and legends. Writings by Voltaire and Alexandre Dumas helped popularize the myth that the mask was made of iron. Yet, most historians agree that he existed. So, who was he? Hundreds of different candidates have been proposed, ranging from a member of the royal family to a disgraced French general, and even the playwright Molière. Still, evidence indicates that only two prisoners were in custody during the same time frame as the mask, Ercole Matiol and Eustace Doga. Matiol was an Italian count who was abducted and jailed after he tried to double-cross Louis XIV during political negotiations in the late 1670s. He was a long-time prisoner, and his name is similar to Marchioli, an alias under which the mask was buried. Even more convincing is that Louis XV and Louis XVI both supposedly said that the mask was an Italian nobleman. Unfortunately, Matteol likely died in 1694, several years too early for him to be the mask. With this in mind, many point to the enigmatic Eustace Doga as the more likely culprit. His 1669 arrest warrant included a letter from a royal minister, instructing jailers to constrict his contact with others and to threaten him with death if he speaks one word about his actual needs. Dauga was frequently shepherded between several prisons, and once was transported in a covered chair so that passers-by would not see his face. While Dauga is a popular candidate for being the mask, historians still don't know who he was or if his name was a pseudonym. One theory holds that he was a lowly valet implicated in a political scandal, but he's also been identified as a debauched nobleman, a failed assassin, and even the twin brother of Louis XIV. Bella of the Witch Elm In 1943, in the middle of World War II, four boys were playing in Hagley Wood outside of Stourbridge, England, when they made a grim discovery, a human skull in the hollow trunk of a witch hazel tree. When police returned to the scene, they found more goodies inside the tree, a nearly complete skeleton of a middle-aged woman, along with some bits of clothing, a shoe, and a cheap wedding ring. A severed hand was subsequently discovered buried nearby. The corpse was found to have a piece of taffeta in its mouth, suggesting the woman had been asphyxiated and she'd been dead about a year and a half. It's surmised that she was stuffed into the tree while she was still warm, as rigor mortis would have prevented it. As the war was raging, the process of identification was stymied. People disappeared all the time during the war, often on purpose. Authorities could roughly discern what the woman looked like, but they had no idea where she was from. All they had was her approximate age, 35, her height, 5 foot, her hair colour, mousy brown, and the fact that she had messed up teeth. A search of 3,000 missing person cases did no good, and although the press did cover the story, no one came forward with information. The war surged on, and people forgot about the incident. To add to the creepiness of this case, strange messages started appearing around Christmas in 1943 or 1944. In the West Midlands town of Old Hill, not far from Hagley, a graffito in white chalk appeared on the side of an empty building, inquiring, 
who put Lubella down the Witch Elm? Witch Hazel and Witch Elms are easily mistaken for one another. Other similar phrases soon showed up in nearby locations, always including the name Bella or Lubella, and frequently the name of Hagley Wood. After a week or two, the phrase became more consistent, taking the form of Who put Bella in the Witch Elm? Despite the messages, the case remained as cold as ever. The best lead the police ever came up with was that a Nazi spy ring had been operating in the Midlands area during the war. One of the women connected to the spies was named Clara Bella Dronkers, who was in her 30s and had irregular teeth. They didn't have enough information, though, to confirm she was the Bella they were looking for. No one ever managed to work out the identity of the graffiti artist, or artists either. The phrase kept appearing for decades after the murder, in and around the Midlands. Many of the instances found it spray-painted in white, in all caps, on the base of the 250-year-old Witchbury Obelisk in Birmingham. That location seems to have been first chosen in the 1970s. The last time the question appeared there was in 1999. Indrid Cold Indrid Cold, also known as the Smiling Man, is an alleged humanoid entity. His other name comes from his tendency to smile at those who encounter him. It is said that up until his death, he visited West Virginia from time to time. Indrid is reported to be human-like in appearance, though is commonly associated with UFO activity and is sometimes believed to be an alien. It is also believed possible that he is connected with the men in black. In his first sighting, he was described as being over six feet tall and wearing a reflective green suit with a black belt. He had a dark complexion and small beady eyes set far apart. He was described as not having any nose, ears or hair. In his second known encounter, his suit was said to be blue instead of green, but still retained its reflective property. Along with that, he was described as looking perfectly natural, with slicked back hair, a coat with the top two buttons unbuttoned, and having pants lighter than the coat, but still the same material. He was also described as being quite tan, though not dark, and looking like any normal human being. According to reports made by Woodrow Derenberger, Indrid Cold came from a planet named Lanyulos in the Ganymede galaxy, and that there were two other grinning men by the names of Demo Hassan and Carl Ardo. Indrid Cold was first seen on the 16th of October 1966, when two boys, Martin Munov and James Yanchitis, in New Jersey, were walking on 4th Street when they saw a surreal figure standing near a fence. As they walked closer, the figure was a tall, bald man, wearing a metal green suit, who was staring right at them with a huge grin. The idiosyncratic man chased them until they got away from him. UFO sightings were also reported in the area. According to Nightmind, the boys only recalled the more frightening details of their encounter later on. They would recall that the man in the green suit was unusually tall and had unnatural facial features, such as the lack of ears and a nose. On November 2, 1966, in Parkersburg, West Virginia, around the same area and time as the Mothman came around, Woodrow Derenberger was driving his way home on Interstate 77, when he heard a crash. Then, an unidentifiable vehicle 
appeared to land in front of his truck. He described it as an old-fashioned kerosene lamp chimney, flaring at both ends, narrowing down to a small neck, and then enlarging to a great bulge in the centre. The grinning man came out of the vehicle with a dark tan, and walked up to Derenberger and telepathically said to him that his name was Indrid Cold, and he meant no harm. Cold said he just wanted to know more about the human race, and he would visit Derenberger again. After the encounter, Derenberger stated that Cold revealed he was from the planet Lanyalos in the galaxy of Ganymede. During the same period in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, the Lilly family had been reporting poltergeist activity in their home, such as diamond-shaped lights. The Lily's daughter Linda was sleeping one night and awoke to see a man standing over her. She told, It was a man, a big man, very broad. I couldn't see his face very well, but I could see that he was grinning at me. He walked around the bed and stood right over me. I screamed again and hid under the covers. When I looked again, he was gone. It is commonly believed that Indrid may be an alien entity, and it's supported by its close connection with UFO activity and with Derenberger's sighting. It is also said by Derenberger that Indrid is in fact a species of aliens with multiple grinning men, although this is unlikely unless the aliens are shapeshifters, because it would be almost impossible for a race to take the exact same evolutionary path as us. However, the third sighting by the Lily family suggests instead that he may be a ghost or spirit of some kind that was connected with poltergeist activity happening in the residence. It may be a prank that went too far, or a man with a mental illness. Others believe that it is a normal human man or a hoax based off of the popularity and fear of the Mothman, who had been first sighted at around the same time. D.B. Cooper D.B. Cooper, also known as Dan Cooper, was a criminal who in 1971 hijacked a commercial plane travelling from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington, and later parachuted out of the aircraft with the ransom money. An extensive manhunt ensued, but the hijacker was never identified or caught, resulting in one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in US history. The man used the alias Dan Cooper, but in the subsequent news reporting, a reporter misheard the name as D.B. Cooper, which became widely used. On November the 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, a nondescript man, who appeared to be in his mid-40s and about six feet tall, bought a $20 ticket for Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305. He gave his name as Dan Cooper, which later turned out to be fake. Shortly after takeoff from Portland, he handed a note to a flight attendant, in which he claimed to have a bomb in his briefcase. He then proceeded to open the attaché case, which contained numerous wires, red sticks, and a battery. Cooper demanded four parachutes and $200,000 in $20 bills, which would be worth about $1.32 million in today's money. After the flight landed in Seattle, Cooper released the 36 passengers when authorities provided the money and parachutes. However, he forced two pilots, a flight engineer, and a flight attendant to remain on the plane. After it refueled, he ordered the pilots to fly to Mexico City. Per his instructions, the plane flew under 10,000 feet at a speed slower than 200 knots. 
around 8pm, while between Seattle and Reno, Nevada, widely believed to be near Ariel, Washington, Cooper lowered the rear steps and jumped from the plane. He then disappeared. The FBI launched what would become one of the longest and most exhaustive investigations in history. Known as Norjack, initially the agency believed that Cooper knew both planes and the area, and it was speculated that he served in the military, possibly as a paratrooper. Later, however, it was decided that he was not an experienced skydiver because the jump was too dangerous, and he failed to notice that his reserve parachute was sewn shut for use in training. The agency reported that it looked at some 800 suspects in the first five years, with almost all being eliminated. Some were ruled out on the basis of DNA that was eventually recovered from the tie Cooper took off before jumping. One prime suspect was Richard Floyd McCoy, who was arrested for a similar crime several months later. However, he was eliminated as a suspect, partly because he did not match the descriptions provided by two flight attendants. While serving his sentence, McCoy made a fake gun and escaped from prison, but was killed in a shootout with law enforcement. Many speculate that Cooper, who was wearing a business suit, trench coat and loafers, did not survive his jump. At that altitude, the winds were more than 200 miles per hour, and the parachute he used could not be steered. In addition, he would have landed in a rugged, heavily wooded area. After years of dead-end leads, investigators received a break in 1980 when a boy found a decaying package containing $5,800. It was buried along the Columbia River, north of Portland, and some 20 miles from Ariel. The serial numbers of the money, all of which were $20 bills, matched those of the ransom. However, following an extensive search, nothing further was found. Although the FBI continued to receive tips, in 2016, the agency officially closed its investigation, stating that its resources could be best used on other cases. The unsolved mystery fascinated the country, and D.B. Cooper became something of a folk hero, inspiring numerous songs, books, and movies. As with most of the people in this video, we may never find out who he really was. Hi guys, thank you so much for listening to today's video. I really hope you enjoyed it. I thought it'd be really fun to try something different. So if you liked it, make sure to leave a like. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the video, making sure to hit that notification bell so you never miss a new video. So, until next time, sleep tight. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. 
Noom.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.